Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Dr. Graham T. Clues. Dr. Clues, a teacher now retired, he is the author of Churchill's Dilemma, the real story behind the 1915 Dardanelles campaign. And today we are discussing with him his latest book, Churchill's Phony War, A Study in Policy and Frustration, published by the Naval Institute Press. Welcome, Dr. Clues. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on to your show. Dr. Clues, what is, uh, in essence, the thesis of your book? Well, look, it's, uh, it's, it strikes me, I say, broadly, it's, it's, it's suggesting that, uh, I mean, when people... Uh, have written in the past uh, and explored the uh, the phony war period. They tend to do it uh, from a a point of view that Churchill was either quite extraordinary or he was or he's uh, quite dreadful. And and I I've tended to take a a middle position and, and argue that he you know he was a mixture of both. He did some things really well and and. Uh, some things indifferently and and potentially disastrously. Now, in the book, there is an extended discussion at the beginning of it of uh, a U-boat controversy about numbers of U-boats sunk by the British in the fall of 1939. And in essence, there was a dispute between Churchill as First Lord of the Admiralty and the Director of Naval Intelligence. Uh, can you go into a little bit of that um, uh, controversy, um, obviously closely um, wrapped in secrecy at the time, um, and um, uh, how would you evaluate Churchill's behavior in that particular instance? It's a, uh, it's Churchill ultimately uh, asserted remarkable success from uh, in thinking of the U-boats attacking and the sinking them. He was making claims uh, for the sinking of U-boats that were quite inconsistent with the facts. And uh, and um, that was something to which uh, Admiral Godfrey, Godfrey took exception and he, he felt that he was overstating things. Um, and Churchill, I think, did not believe he was doing so. And... Uh, this went on for most of the phony war, and eventually, as, as you will know, having read it, that uh, eventually he instituted a, a an inquiry in uh, in mid 1940 to establish exactly the circumstances, and, and it it transpired that uh, Godfrey was and his more conservative approach to uh, the assessment of U-boat sinkings uh, was much closer to the mark than Churchill. Now, Churchill's accused of 
doing this fairly calculatedly. And uh, I, I, I mean, I put forward the proposition that, uh, and argued the case that he had good cause to believe that that, that uh, Britain was doing remarkably well against the U-boats um, in '39 and early '40 while he was the first lord. Uh, and I, I expand on that in in the chapter and um, indicate that he. He was um, well. He was certainly wrong. I mean, and, and on, on a number of levels. Not only was he wrong on the assessment of how many U-boats were sunk, but he, he had these extraordinary um, calculations and estimates of how many were being attacked and then damaged either seriously or, or partly. Um, the reality was that very few U-boats were being found, and very few were being. Uh, uh, attacked throughout the phony war. But this information was information that he was being supplied by the um, anti-submarine warfare division. So he wasn't making this stuff up. He was being given this information uh, and um, he, he applied it somewhat injudiciously. Now, to go back a little bit, um it is um, uh, well known that uh, upon Churchill's um, return to the Admiralty, there was a famous cable which or signal which went out, uh, quote, Winston is back, which, um, at least to the uninitiated, gives the appearance of the sort of the ancient mariner returning to, to home. Uh, is that, in fact, a good um, description of the Admiralty staff's um, initial uh, relations or response to Churchill's return to the Admiralty, or was it a little bit more ambiguous? Well, my first comment is that, as much as I've read on this, is that that a claim about the Winston is back is is, is um, somewhat dubious. I I'm not actually sure that it actually occurred. Um, but putting that to one side, what did the Admiralty think of him? Um, I think it's very difficult to actually tell. Um, I think they respected his uh, the things he could do for the navy. He was fairly aggressive in outlook and so on. But he 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 had his own uh, views on things, and he quickly found himself at, at odds with uh, Pound, for example, on uh, Pound and Phillips, Admiral Pound and Admiral Phillips on uh, naval construction. And uh, of course, he, he had this notion of uh, an attempt to break into the Baltic. Um, this was called Operation Catherine. Um, so it was, the, but you, when you read comments from Pound and others, they they do acknowledge his strengths, but I think they're fully aware of his weaknesses as well. So look, I would I would think you'd be fair to say that uh, with most things, there were there are mixed mixed attitudes. Um, he was a very, very strong personality. Um, he had very distinct views on things and they were not always shared by uh, the Admiralty itself. Can you go in a little bit and describe uh, what you just mentioned, Operation Catherine Churchill's uh, proposed um, uh, British naval incursion into the Baltic Sea 
and uh, why the Admiralty staff, particularly uh, the first Sea Lord, uh, I'm sorry, the first Lord of the Admiralty, I'm sorry, first Sea Lord, my apologies, uh, Admiral Sir Dudley Pound, why he was vociferously opposed to it? Well, the, the idea of an incursion into the Baltic goes right back to the First World War and indeed even before that. And uh, he put forward this uh, proposal uh, in 1915 uh, and then again later in the war. Um, and uh, it, 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 he... He was disappointed. I think there's no doubt he was disappointed that it had not taken place. And I think he, I think he wrote as much in uh, his history of the First World War. Uh, and he he mentioned he addressed this uh, this um, plan again in early '39 before the outbreak of the war. He thought this was a another way of applying pressure to the Germans. Um, High risk, of course, in 1939, 1940, uh, because of the air force and the German air threat, and and arguably that was the main reason why a Pound resisted it. I mean, um, beyond that, you've, you're talking about a, a navy in 1939, 1940, which is a fraction of of the navy the British had in uh, in First World War. And uh, I think many fewer battleships uh, and Churchill imagined that they had some surplus to need. Uh, but Pound and Phillips thought this was nonsense. Um, certainly the Germans had a fraction of their First World War fleet as well. But the issue was the British could have found themselves uh, eventually in conflict with the Italians and the, and the Japanese. And uh, so the notion that there was a surplus of these battleships uh, that could, several of which I think he was talking, uh, writing of having three try to enter the Baltic, uh, was absurd. But more than that, it was, it was the notion that they could stay there and, and, uh, and, and indeed face the threat of uh, German aircraft. Now, he proposed doing all sorts of things to make this viable, including adding armour to the decks and so on. But Pound was never really interested. And he, he put forward, the, you know, he argued the case that it was only uh, when they were very, it was very clear who they were up against. And there was really no way of knowing that for years ahead, um, that uh, they would contemplate such a high-risk operation and so he did his best to dampen it, and by January 1940, the, the, the operation was shelved. Churchill still kept it in mind and insisted that, that, that all the preparations that had already been made should be uh, kept on standby for uh, perhaps a similar operation in 19, 1941, and it never came to pass for all sorts of reasons. And that was a blessing for everyone, no doubt. Uh, what exactly is what you refer to in the book as, quote, cigar butt strategy, unquote? That's, I believe, a Curly Barnett um, term, yes. Now, I suppose 
it, the way I would interpret it is a fairly off-the-cuff kind of uh, ideas that hadn't been given a great deal of thought. And um, certainly that's my interpretation of, of what Barnett meant. Um, and Churchill did a lot of that sort of stuff. And, and uh, he, you know, people constantly had to sort of uh, tie him down and, and um, find ways of means of, um, of uh, distracting him. And Pound was quite good at that, I think. Uh, and Pound would speak his mind. Uh, I believe some people say that Pound was, uh, I think um, Roscoff was an example who argued that Pound was quite quite soft. Uh, I thought uh, he stood his ground, and certainly the evidence of what I read, he stood his ground on any issue he considered important. Uh, he was mindful of the fact, though, that you just didn't... Uh, Go uh, to tackle Churchill directly. You know, you would try and distract him, and and, and you often see that in a lot of the writing. That uh, you know, he comes up with an idea, you distract him uh, with other things, and 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 that that idea is shelved. Though ironically, he was extraordinarily persistent with Catherine through uh, through September through to December, uh, and that's because of the political uh, developments as well, which actually. Uh, for a period of time, uh, gave him greater cause to think that you know this could really make a difference because, uh, as as you would know, uh, there was a great focus from uh, late late uh, 1935 sorry, on um, separating Germany from Swedish oil supply, and, and he he imagined that that Operation Catherine could, could help in some way to achieve that. So that gave him cause to keep on pushing this this plan, and Town uh, had to work particularly hard at trying to distract him on that one. Uh, Churchill and his appreciation of the building requirements of the uh, Admiralty seems unusually sensitive to extra naval considerations of strategy. What do you attribute this unique point of view uh, to? I'm going to have to ask you to, to clarify what you mean by by the question. Oh, uh, no, I'm sorry. Oh, uh, what I meant was extra naval considerations of strategy. Why was Churchill uh, more than usually sensitive to um, uh, aspects of uh, the war strategy which went beyond his particular department? In the book, you relate that uh, um, counterintuitively, of course, that he was very sensitive to the need to not overbuild, and therefore, uh, and again, this is very unusual for any um, uh, First Lord of the Admiralty at any period of time, I presume, uh, that uh, he cut down on the um, uh, building requirements for the Admiralty in terms of battleships, aircraft carriers, uh, cruisers, destroyers, etc., what do you what do you attribute this peculiar seemingly peculiar um, policy point of view? Yes, and I understand uh, where you're coming from on, on that one. Yes, it, it's unusual. You you would expect um, a first lord, as you would expect uh, um, a secretary of state for air or war, to be um, really pushing their their own portfolio, but Churchill came in with a with a 
big picture approach, um, and he he felt that uh, you know the navy had to live within means, and uh, as did the air force and the army, and he thought that that the the Royal Navy was quite well served. He thought uh, he it generally had. Um, requirements sufficient to needs. Of course, he recognised that the real focus needed to be on small craft to deal with the anti-U-boat um, campaign, which he anticipated to get um, become quite significant as time went on, though he, he imagined it would be nothing like that at the First World War. So yes, it was very much a, a big picture view, and he... he look, he just uh, took the approach that, uh, you know, he was more than a than a first lord, and and uh, he stuck his nose into everybody's business. Uh, as a member of the war cabinet, uh, much to the chagrin of of um, other war cabinet members, and, and it was an unusual thing. But I think it goes back to his experience of the First World War, where he was he was um, not only first lord, but later in the, in the war, he was uh, he was involved in dealing with. Uh, munitions and so on, and and uh, I think he felt uh, during the First World War that the, the 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 Navy had demanded more than it was than its due, and then then had done so little with it. Um, the Navy was a, was a vast instrument uh, in at the end of the First World War, but I think he looked back with a sense that well. What did it do? What did it achieve with um, its its uh, vast fleet of battleships and so on? And uh, of course, he, he the argument, of course, was it was a fleet in being. But Churchill's aggressive instincts really required that it be put to use, and and it wasn't. In the Second World War, uh, I think that was influential to some degree, um, but beyond that. He had a very intense focus, and this is something that becomes becomes quite obvious when you when you read uh, what he was doing in the early parts of the war. He had this focus on the first year or so of the war that that money needed to be spent in a way that helped Britain avoid being defeated. Uh, was investing on on uh, distant projects, and, that, and of course. Battleships, for example, are a very long-term um, operation. And you're talking three or four years to build them. And to Churchill's mind, well, while these are being built, um, we could be defeated or seriously compromised by not having the things that we need more immediately. And that included, of course, a, a larger army, which was quite small at the start of the war. So he had a he, he he had a very strong short-term focus, and uh, that influenced his attitude to naval construction, and um, it put him at odds with Pound and and uh, Phillips, who who both thought in mind of a a futurist, including that of war with Japan, and so it was a major sticking point between the the three of them. Uh, how did uh, Churchill, in fact, uh, differ in his uh, views of the th potential threat from Japan and Italy from uh, uh, Sir Dudley Pound and uh, Admiral Phillips? 
Well, I I I argue that he he um, he thought in terms of you know if we if, if Britain took action and acted in a way that kept the German threat under control, the others wouldn't develop. And um, so the focus again was along with the French to um, limit that threat. The Japanese and the Italians would uh, take advantage of any success the Germans had. So if you could deny the German success uh, at whatever level, the other two threats wouldn't develop. And I think to that extent he was he was correct. So he, he, he rather than again rather than in, in invest money and resources in, in into longer term threats and, and, and Pound and Phillips and the Navy more generally um, always maintain that focus. So look, we we, we want to come out uh, we want to come out the end of this war. Uh, strong enough to deal with other threats. And, and, and Churchill said, well, no, we've got to deal with this one first. You know, if we don't deal with this one, uh, none of that will really matter. And, and moreover, if we deal with Germany successfully, then the others won't arise. And that was quite a different approach. Uh, how would you describe Churchill's uh, initial behavior in the war cabin in the fall of 1939? Could he have been accused of uh, intriguing? Uh, I, I think it, my sense of Churchill throughout the entire period was that he was very loyal. He was a very professional um, member of the War Cabinet. He, he, he had a big picture approach to things and he certainly stepped uh, beyond his own portfolio and he, he dabbled in anything and everything. Um, and and as, I've, as I've indicated, that tended to upset his colleagues. But I, I, I can't think of an occasion on an example where you would suggest he, he was a tri- intriguing. Are you, are you just talking in terms of intriguing against Chamberlain, for example? No, my sense, I think, Jenna, and, and unless there's something that uh, you've read in my book that gives you a, a cause to believe otherwise, uh, no, I think he was... He was a, a very loyal member of the War Cabinet, and uh, you know he was he committed to Chamberlain very on, very early on, and I think he remained that way for for most of the most of the time, most of the phony war until the very very well. I think throughout, I think he did the right thing with with Churchill, uh, with Chamberlain rather, and. Um, the the big thing with with Churchill was that he he took a big picture approach and he quite happily interfered with with anything and everything, which is something we've already talked about. He he, he tried to adopt a uh, a whole holistic approach. He took uh, on board the needs of the air force, the needs of the army, uh, and as you've already identified, he was prepared to compromise compromise um, money spent. On the navy as well. So no, I, I I don't see that he was an intriguer at all. Um, and this is obviously part of the historiography of of the period. I think there are those who um, were quite 
I think the suggestion was yes, even if he was not doing much himself, he was more than content for, for his his uh, supporters to be doing things behind the scenes. But no, I don't see much evidence of that. So in essence, he was playing with a straight bat. I think so. Yes, I think he was. Um, in many respects, you know, very relieved to be part of the cabinet. He, he, he immersed himself in his responsibilities. Uh, he certainly did push his own agenda, and 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 that agenda was uh, to be as aggressive as, as he as he possibly could with the Royal Navy, um, and that was the uh, source of the only thing open to the, the government at the time for, for aggressive action against the Germans. He was a you know, very busy, engaged member of the war cabinet, uh, and I think he was playing with the straight boats throughout, yes. Uh, did Churchill's view of strategy and the UK's strategic options differ markedly from those of the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax? I think there's an assumption, there's an underlying assumption in uh, many works that uh, yes, he was uh, quite determined. He wanted to take the, the fight to the Germans and and, and uh, be much more aggressive um, than either Chamberlain and Halifax and the cabinet more generally were prepared to be. Um, I'm not I'm not persuaded by that. I mean, there's no doubt that he wanted to use the uh, the Royal Navy more aggressively or parts of it, and that's what Operation Catherine was about. Um, and he, and as you know, he uh, he also proposed a modest plan to uh, mine the Norwegian leads to force uh, ships carrying ore to Germany uh, out into uh, international waters where they could be intercepted. Um, but that's comparatively small operation, which didn't didn't actually uh, take place until April the following year. Um, no, I actually think, by and large, he conformed to the Chamberlain view, of, of which is essentially sit tight and rearm. Now we let's not uh, engage too much in things uh, take advantage of uh, whatever hiatus they get to rearm and rebuild, uh, or not rebuild, but to build, because they were a long way behind the Germans in certain aspects. And um, I think that's at odds with the, the, the perspective taken by a lot of historians. Um, now, there's, there's some controversy exists around his attitude to the use of air power. Um, the, the argument being that he would like to be more aggressive in the air, and I, I saw absolutely no evidence of that. Um, he he recognised that uh, there are advantages in, in, in letting things proceed as they were. So no, I, I I he was certainly frustrated by lack of aggressive opportunities, um, and he pushed several proposals on the war cabinet which they were reluctant to adopt um, but by and large he he conformed to the sit tight and rearm um, approach of Chamberlain 
and on many occasions um, supported it quite publicly and uh, accepted that, you know, every day the Germans uh, were declined to be aggressive towards Britain was an opportunity for Britain to rearm and prepare. Uh, what was the proposed uh, Narvik operation and why was Churchill in favor of it? Well, as I've already uh, indicated, the Narvik proposal was during the during the well, pre-war. Most of Germany's ore came via the Galavar oil fields and and, and and one or two other oil fields in Sweden. And uh, during the winter months, the Baltic freezes and the oil, therefore, was shipped across Norway to the port of Narvik in uh, northern New Norway. And then uh, from there was shipped uh, down down through the Norwegian territorial waters to Germany. And Church was quite keen to intercept this, this oil for the obvious reason that it would deprive... Germany of uh, the ore needed for its war machine. Now, in late November 1939, uh, the uh, Ministry of Economic Warfare uh, claimed that if they could actually cut this supply of war to Germany after as little as six months, it could have a decisive difference on uh, on the war and 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 um, perhaps lead to Germany's defeat. And this was to my mind, a great exaggeration, but Churchill uh, ran with this idea and he put it before the War Cabinet. Uh, but it didn't take off, and, and, it, and it took off, it failed to do so for this reason, that uh, a couple of weeks later, the, the Minister of Economic Warfare came out and uh, with a kind of amended approach to this, and he, they argued, well, in actual fact, it probably wouldn't do the harm we expect. If, if we really wanted to make a difference, we need to cut off all of uh, Germany's uh, oil supply from, from Sweden. That, meaning, that meant, of course, cutting off the supply uh, through the Gulf of Bosnia during the summer months once the Baltic, is, had melted, Baltic ice had melted. Now, that was uh, a different operation. The question was, okay, Narvik's not going to work by itself. So is there a way to also address the summer supply? And the notion came to pass in late November. In, in, in November 30th, the, uh, the Russians invaded Finland. And... Uh, as time went on, the, the the idea was put forward that if if uh, Britain and France offered to help uh, Finland, that would give them ultimately and potentially access to to Sweden, and they could uh, get control of the Galavar oil fields and cut off both winter and summer supplies. And once you get a hold of the oil fields, uh, that would be the end of the matter. Now this is for all sorts of reasons, an absurd proposition, uh, and uh, but it was sufficient 
to stall the Narvik operation uh, by um, because the ocean was put forward. Well, the only way we're going to be able to uh, get access to Sweden is if if we uh, if they're um, if they seek our support, and they won't seek our support if we cut off uh, this supply of oil by a Narvik. So it essentially meant that the Narvik plan was suspended while this Finnish plan went forward and, and in the end neither took place. Um, well, uh, sorry, that I, should, that stands, I should correct that and say that the, the Narvik operation didn't occur until very early in April and by that time it was uh, very much too late. And of course, several days later, or indeed almost immediately, the Germans, by coincidence, uh, launched Operation Reservoir and uh, invaded Norway. Uh, but that's another story. Why was the German invasion of Norway such a surprise, other than, I suppose, the non-availability at that time of ultra-intercepts? Well, it's uh, it's an interesting thing, an interesting question. Um, there was there was there were quite a few warnings uh, that they had. In fact, the warnings given were remarkably precise and remarkably ac- accurate. I mean, they were they were aware they were made aware through intelligence that forces were going to uh, head towards Narvik and, and occupy that that port. And that's precisely what happened. It was it was remarkably precise. But it was assessed as being of um, dubious merit. And uh, by the time they grasped that this was an actual fact occurring, it was it was too late. Um, as for the movements of the ships themselves, well, no doubt weather played a part in uh, concealing uh, elements of the forces. But the ones that were moving towards Narvik were identified and were pursued, but they were some way ahead of the British forces. And those those that, by coincidence, were about Narvik um, were, by a series of misfortunes, removed from uh, a position of interception. And that was uh, something I addressed in some detail in my in my book. Uh, exploring why it was that despite the remarkable coincidence of events that you've actually got this mining force, you've got four mining destroyers, and you've got four other destroyers in support, and you've got uh, HMS HMS, uh, Renown nearby, and you've got this force of German... uh, ships heading towards Narvik and the opportunity was potentially there for a decisive victory and so for one misfortune after another that did not come to pass and I, I address that in, in, in considerable detail and explain um, why this wonderful opportunity to have a decisive victory against the uh, German forces failed to, failed to uh, take place. Can uh, Churchill's actions or inactions in the Norway campaign be viewed in a more negative light than those of the Prime Minister or the Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax? Look, they, they, 
they all made mistakes. Errors of judgments were made uh, for all sorts of reasons. But I think generally I, uh, that um, church was perhaps um, uh, held more responsible than, than he ought to be, and, and Chamberlain and Halifax less so. And this is something that uh, another historian, Chris Bell, um, addressed some years ago, and, and I've developed on that, that uh, if you really dig a bit more deeply, you, you'll find that uh, it's not Churchill that's pushing things, it's, it's Chamberlain and Halifax, as you'd expect, really, um, encouraging um, and, and, and directing strategy. And then Churchill had that, essentially he had to find a way to, to solve the problems that he faced. And he did that, um, well, he always tried to accommodate these things and he was probably a bit too precipitate in, in, in uh, the way he addressed these things. He, he um, tried to find solutions that ultimately failed to work. Um, so should he should he be held more responsible than Chamberlain and and Halifax? No, I don't think so. I mean, they 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 made error, different errors of judgment for different reasons. The dynamics of the whole Norwegian campaign. The notion was always leading prior to um, April 9th, which was the day on which the Germans entered. Uh, Narvik, Trondheim, Bergen, Stavanger and Oslo um, in Norway that the, any German forces could be preempted, uh, at least along the west coast of places like Bergen, Trondheim and Narvik. Um, it was just a general acceptance that with the Royal Navy, power of the Royal Navy and the appropriate levels of surveillance and so on, that these forces, German forces, could never occupy these ports. And for that reason, they wouldn't try. And they were wrong. They, they took this bold chance and they, all for a variety of reasons, evaded the, the British forces that were available. And they occupied these ports, and from that point on, they were they were at an advantage. Churchill thought that they'd be able to turn things about quite rapidly, but that proved not to be the case for all sorts of reasons. Uh, perhaps the most important, of which was German air power. Um, so, I think I've lost my train of thought on that one. But uh, if you might want to help me pick up on that one, but. Uh, I, I think, generally speaking, there are multiple reasons for the, for the, for the Germans to succeed in the, and the British not to, and it's a mixture of responsibility. But if there's, a, if there's a sense that it's all Church's fault, that would not be true at all. Uh, in your discussion of the Churchill-Chamberlain relationship, circa April 1940, you, you would be correct to say that you differ from the views of, say, someone like Paul Addison, who in essence uh, states that uh, Chamberlain gave uh, Churchill the chairmanship 
of the Military Coordination Committee uh, because he, in essence, was uh, blackmailed by Churchill, that Churchill had, um, as per Addison, uh, had threatened to resign, and Chamberlain realized that if he did, the entire government would fall. So, uh, therefore, accordingly, he gave in to Churchill's ultimatum. Uh, I pr why do you dis disagree with that um, analysis? Uh, well, I think a couple of things is that um, Churchill was given the chairmanship of the Military Coordination Committee in, in early April. Um, and uh, I don't think there's any hint there that uh, was uh, any kind of ultimatum involved. Now, I argue that you know, that was not a particularly un unreasonable, unsurprising uh, or surprising thing to do because beginning of April, the two key initiatives as far as the war comes, was concerned were, were ones that had stemmed from uh, Churchill. And that's that's uh, an operation uh, against Narvik, but also an operation called Operation Royal Marine, which was um, a, a plan to seed uh, the rivers and waterways of uh, Germany with a floating mine. And it, I, I just felt it made sense to um, elevate Churchill to this position. The, the keeping in mind that the former, the former chair Chatfield was in a in a peculiar situation, and uh, and he felt redundant. He felt that he couldn't persuade and influence, and uh, I think eventually Chamberlain agreed. Now. There certainly was pressure uh, during March and post the collapse of the Finnish option to, to uh, I think, within the House to give Churchill greater influence. Uh, and I, I, so it's always difficult to tell to what extent Chamberlain felt compelled to do this. But I argue that he was all the flip side, which is that he was always aware that. Churchill was um, the most competent within his cabinet in terms of matters of war. And given that these were his initiatives that were now pursuing, it made sense for him to be uh, um, more responsible. That said, the position of, of chairman, uh, certainly in the early part, parts of April, was... Um, not really a promotion at all. I mean, it didn't give Churchill any particular power. Now, I think what you might be referring to is uh, the uh, the pressure that Churchill brought to bear in about uh, the 23rd, 24th of April when he uh, had drafted a letter to Churchill saying, look, look, I don't really want to take uh, hold this role as chairman any further because it's 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 responsibility without authority. Um, and uh, that's an interesting dynamic there because on the one hand, Churchill's uh, concerned that he he was being required to make decisions or the part of decisions that he didn't agree with. 
but he would have to share the responsibility for. And I actually think that Chamberlain took a slightly different view. He actually felt that uh, church was part decisions that he could um, claim no part in. And, and I think Churchill, Churchill wanted to have greater influence and greater power, so the decisions being made uh, were more in tune with what uh, he thought was appropriate. And Chamberlain wanted to come up with a situation that would tie him more closely to the decisions that were being made, because if he wasn't able to disavow responsibility for them, then he would be more responsible in the choices he made. So I actually thought it was a coalescence of of of, of, um, of need with, uh, I suppose, I think both parties thought there was merit in it. Um, so no, I, I I don't share that. There's a sense that Churchill was was intimidating and and threatening uh, to. Um, and pressured Chamberlain into this, into this reluctantly. Now, there may have been an element of reluctance in giving Churchill unfettered power. And I think the track record of Churchill during the phony wall tended to justify that. Um, but a distinction needs to be made between just giving him carte blanche and saying, look, here we are, we'll give you all the authority you wish uh, and uh, we will let you do make all the decisions and so on. Uh, or, and giving him greater responsibility. And in the end, Church was given uh, a greater role in the MCC. Uh, he was able to deal more directly with the chiefs of staff, and he was quite content with that. And um, it, it, it remains to be seen how well that would have worked. Churchill certainly was content with it, but in early May, um, you have the the famous uh, Norwegian Norway debates, and on November on May 10 you have a change of government. So, and Churchill becomes prime minister, and 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 he deals even more directly with the chiefs of staff. So, we don't really know how that would have worked. But no, I I, I generally do not accept the notion that uh, Church was Chamberlain was being. Um, uh, how would you say, um, threatened by Churchill's resignation. And, and, and yes, I think the relationship was much better than that. How important was Lord Salisbury's watching committee to the downfall of Chamberlain in the May debate over the Norway campaign? I don't profess to be an expert in all the ins and outs of those things, uh, you know, and the, their particular influence. Um, I tend to take a slightly different view of the, of the whole process and argue that the decision to resign was more Chamberlain's than it is accepted to be the case. I think, I mean, I, I think the, the catalyst for change was that Chamberlain accepted that there had to be a national government and Indeed, as you as you know from reading the book, Churchill actually counselled after the, the infamous or famous May 9 and May 8, uh, sorry, May 7th and 8th debate. Uh, at the end of that, on in the evening on the 8th, Churchill counselled uh, Chamberlain to hang in there. 
rebuild your government, bring in uh, the liberals and, and so on. Uh, we can we can still go on. And Chamberlain was the one who had concluded that the change had to be made and that, and, and that, that, that had to, we had to advance with a national government. And uh, if that couldn't be achieved with him, uh, with with Chamberlain as Prime Minister, he resigned. And um, that left the door open ultimately to, to Chamberlain because Halifax simply wasn't interested. He did not wish to be uh, the Prime Minister of Britain. And um, so, yes, I, I'm sure the it's a, how can I say, it's a, There are those who argue that it was Labor's refusal to be part of a national government with Chamberlain as the Prime Minister that was a big influence. Others say that it was it was the fact that so few um, Conservatives supported Churchill, some, uh, sorry Chamberlain, and some abstained and so on. But I think it's worth bearing in mind that, that Chamberlain still had a majority, and quite a substantial one. Um, and that he he may well have been able to carry on, but he'd concluded that uh, a national government was necessary. And it looked it's pretty obvious, uh, and certainly by the evening of uh, the ninth, I think. Uh, yes, the ninth, uh, in the afternoon of the ninth. The, the famous meeting with with Attlee and Greenwood and so on, and it was pretty. You know, they they didn't say emphatically, but they said, "Look, you know, they, they indicated that the chances are of, of the of the Labor Party accepting him as uh, as Prime Minister was pretty slim." And Churchill, I think Chamberlain recognised that fact, and uh, he, you know, they they decided that day that it was that afternoon. In fact, they'd already decided before they they had this meeting with Attlee that if Labor Party said no, then to to shame and continue as Prime Minister, then Churchill would be uh, be put forward as the new leader. And that assumed, of course, I suppose that uh, that Chamberlain that Churchill was susceptible to the Labor Party. And as you know, if you as you've read the book, that. Uh, you know, I think that was the, perhaps one of the most influential things in Churchill's mind, and why I argue that he was uh, he was more supportive of, of Chamberlain than many people contend was that one he he didn't want Labor to be part of a, a government, and two he perhaps worried that Labor would also say that yes, well, we will be part of a government, but it can't include Churchill as well. And um, I think that's a, that's a slightly different perspective that's, than that that's out there at the moment. Overall, what is your assessment of Churchill's performance in the period in um, in office during the uh, phony war? Well, I think it's fair to say that Churchill was always a mixture of strengths and weaknesses, and and they were always fairly obvious, and they manifested again during um, September through to May. 
um, he did some things well and and, and some things indifferently, and uh, that's probably not surprising. My contention, though, is because there are those who would say, well, look, you know, how much better things would have been had Churchill been Prime Minister from the start of the war. I'm not convinced of that at all. I mean, I think you've got to look at the different dynamics of the time periods. Um, the phony war was phony for for reasons other than Britain not being more proactive and aggressive. Um, Churchill was seeking ways to be more aggressive and some of them were rather dubious propositions and uh, um, some like the mining of Marvick might have gone ahead but it probably would have achieved very little. Um, I I think I to some extent argue that Chamberlain was the right man for the phony war and Churchill was the right man from May 10 onwards. Uh, they they had different strengths and different weaknesses, um, and I, I've also argued that I don't think all said and done that in many respects the phony war would have been much different uh, under Churchill, um, and then a particular uh, point I develop is his attitude to to uh, air power and the use of uh, the escalation of the air war, there's this sense that, or this notion that Churchill would have been much more aggressive against Germany in the air had he been Prime Minister. Uh, There's no evidence of that at all. In fact, I argue very strongly that he was, along with Chamberlain, perhaps the most conservative about uh, escalating the air war in the entire war cabinet. so, look, he had he was he 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 was a man who I think his colleagues had cause to be worried about and cautious with. You know, he he did some really and suggested some really silly things, and uh, it, it, the the notion, as I said, that if he'd been prime minister, that things would have been uh, that much better is just just extremely doubtful. And uh, yes, I don't think it's beyond dispute that he he made a very successful wartime prime minister. But uh, whether he would have um, been the right man to have been running the country between September and May. Uh, September 1939 and May 1940 is another issue altogether. Um, and this is the distinction. They're, they're the right men for their times to some extent. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Well, that's a tough one. I think what I've, I've, I've tried to do is provide... Um, balance. Now that's not been a mission so much as it's just the the way in which the evidence that I discovered pointed me. Um, that there's any point in being anti-Chamberlain and 
Perry Churchill, um, I think you just weigh their performances on their merits. And um, I think the, the, the Churchill that I detail in my book is a mixture of, of strengths and weaknesses. And uh, he was not—he was not a godsend. He was not a, a, a blessing. Uh, absolutely. He, he had wonderful strength, you know, and there's no doubt his speeches were very important and his presence was very important. But within the war cabinet himself, he wasn't a resounding success. He was a mixture of, as I said, strengths and weaknesses. And uh, so it's, uh, I think it's important that we, we take this on board. Uh, I I'm ultimately wonder if I'm... I think people crave heroes and that's all well and good, but I think it's always good to acknowledge that even even our heroes have feet of clay and uh, and we need to be able to acknowledge that. I think the balance is, is, is highly desirable in in these in uh, the writing of anyone and, and perhaps most of all Churchill. Um you, know, you can certainly hold him, put him on a pedestal, but I think it's always desirable to say, well, yeah, he, he didn't get everything right all the time. But it's all, the flip side is it's equally the case that, you know, he, he wasn't a complete disaster. Too. Not that too many people want to say that these days, or indeed ever have. Well, with that observation, Dr. Clues, I would like to thank you very much for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Dr. Clues. Thank you very much.